Welcome to Season 4 of Marla by the Numbers, the podcast from the International Association of Fairs and Expositions with your host, Marla Calico, the President and CEO of the IAFE. Podcast number 30 is sponsored by ETIX. Today's guest is Dr. Maggie Baldwin, Colorado State Veterinarian, and the topic is Three Ways Fairs Can Be Prepared for Animal Disease Outbreaks. Let's listen in. Welcome, everyone. It's great to have you back on Marla by the Numbers. I have a very special guest with us today, Dr. Maggie Baldwin. She's the Colorado State Veterinarian. I've had a chance to meet her at a couple of different meetings. Very impressed with her work. Welcome, Dr. Baldwin. How are you doing today? I am doing well, Marla. Thank you so much for having me on. It is great. We appreciate the time. Uh, Hey, listen, as we get underway, why don't you just give us a little bit of your background, um, where you grew up, how you came to be in this position? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm, I'm actually originally from Minnesota, so not a Colorado native, but I do love it out here in Colorado. And um, in fact, just recently, my mom got to attend a talk that I gave to a group of veterinarians last week out here in Colorado. And one of the questions that one of the folks asked my mom <laughs> during the <laughs> Q&A session was, did you know that she was going to be a veterinarian? And my mom said, absolutely, hands down, yes, since the time she she was a toddler. We knew she was going to grow up to be a veterinarian. Now, I don't think any of us saw my career taking the path that it did, becoming <laughs> the state veterinarian, you know, this early in my career. But boy, do I love it. Um, so I grew up, like I said, in Minnesota, rural area. I um, grew up with a, a, a background in um, an interest in production, agriculture, production, animal medicine. Um, and, and then actually in veterinary school, I, I learned about this world of regulatory medicine and how important, you know, policies and um, these regulatory officials are in ensuring a safe and wholesome food supply, not just for our nation, but globally. Um, and so that really captivated my interest. And I, I took all of the courses I could. There aren't a lot in regulatory medicine, um, but also pursued internships in regulatory medicine and actually went right into regulatory medicine after I graduated veterinary school. I started working for USDA Uh um, and I loved it. I loved working in, you know, this sector that you really get to be a beneficiary of the work that you're doing in agriculture because we all eat, we all wear clothes, we all, we all get to benefit from the good work that we put into this. And so I worked for USDA for a number of years um, during the avian influenza outbreak in 2014, 2015, mm-hmm. transferred to work on that response side here in Colorado. And um, that's really when I started working with the previous Colorado State Veterinarian, Dr. Keith Rohr, and the Assistant State Veterinarian, Dr. Nick Striegel. And after um, I worked during you know, the, the 2014, 2015 outbreak, they asked me to come and work for CDA at the Department of Agriculture. So I actually started as a temp employee here at CDA. <laughs> CDA six years ago, writing our emergency response plans Um, and specifically for um, continuity of business. How do we keep uh, our agricultural, you know, um, commodities in business during disease outbreaks and then writing our our other foreign animal disease response plans. Um, And so a number of position shifting, um, you know, (laughs) later, I I think this is my fifth position at CDA here. (laughs) 
Um, I've been in this role for almost two years and and I just love the work that we do here. Well, that is awesome. And of course, our paths crossed as you work with the shows and fairs in Colorado uh, to make sure, again, that in the event of an animal disease outbreak, that our fairs and fairgrounds respond appropriately, that they're prepared. And of course, as you and I have had conversations, I've worked extensively with USDA as well as public health CDC with Mm -hmm. regard to the avian influenza outbreaks that have occurred. And and we remember very well the 2014-2015 impact to our fairs across yeah. the country where we literally had to stop shows and how do we convey to our guests the the seriousness of this and and um in as much as the outbreak through 2022 has not been as severe to fairs and shows, they play a very important role in this and it's important that they understand it. So thank you for being our guest today and we want to focus on that that aspect of the things that you've learned from working with fairs and fairgrounds and shows, how they can be better prepared uh, and understand their role in the event of an animal disease outbreak. And I think to that end, you've got three tips for us today. Is that correct? I sure do. Absolutely. All right. So what's your top tip? What's number one? So number one, I think one of the most important things that shows and fair event organizers, um, superintendents, really anybody involved is know your state veterinarian, know your regulatory officials, know who's in charge of the policies and the decision-making at the state level. Um, And I think that that's critically important, one, because you can stay really well connected and know what your expectations are. So that, and it's really important to establish those relationships in peacetime. We don't (laughs) want to be exchanging business cards during a disease outbreak or in the event of an emergency. So, you know, develop those relationships in peacetime. Reach out to your state veterinarian, reach out to your regulatory officials. And in in all states, I mean, it's structured a little bit differently. And Marla, I know you work internationally too. Mm -hmm. So, right, it's not just the United States. Correct. But know who's in charge of, of, you know, the the policies in whatever space you're working in. Um, Because I think it's really important. You can, one, keep engaged with them. Um, And then in the event that there's a disease outbreak, you reach out and you, you, at least get a concept of what they're looking for. What are they looking at for policy changes? Any updates? What's the status of the outbreak? So for example, here in Colorado, you know, we've been now with highly pathogenic avian influenza in an outbreak scenario for almost a year. Mm-hmm. And it's ongoing. Um, and and you know, everybody relies on us to tell them what the current status is, where is the disease, what are we expecting, what's next on the horizon. So we've put together webinars, we've put together informational materials, we have our CSU extension folks in our joint information center. So they're always getting updates and regularly getting those communications and knowing what to put out there for the exhibitionists. So for our shows and fairs, and here's what's going to happen this season. Um, I think it's also really important that the, the exhibition world 
can also be a conduit for us to communicate to all of those folks. So to our shows and fair attendees, to the folks that are, are you know, bringing animals and um, doing those exhibitions, how can we get better communications out? The other really important piece for us to know is what do you guys need to know? What, what do you guys want us to be telling you? What sort of information and communication is the most helpful to you guys? So when we do go into a policy making mode and we, we do you know, decide whether we're going to suspend shows and fairs and events this year, what is that impact going to look like? Um, and we rely on you guys for that information. So it really is a two-way street for that communication. Absolutely. And I think that's where it's, uh, if I could stress to any segment of our audience, it's to, for example, the State and Provincial Association Affairs, just like the Colorado Association Affairs and Shows CAFs, is that their executive, that their leadership make sure that the department, the state vet office, has a current list of all of the shows and fairs, uh, contact information uh, to make sure and to help facilitate that. Uh, in as much as the IFE does that, obviously, as much as we can, we're really working at that more federal level. And we rely upon the state and provincial folks to make that conduit happen. And I guess I would might also ask your opinion. I would assume that in addition to our animal health, the regulatory authorities that fairs and shows should also be in contact would be the public health authorities as well. Absolutely. You are spot on with that. And in it, again, those structures look different in every state. They look different in every country. So here in Colorado, we have one state veterinarian's office. We have a state public health office, but we have county public health offices and, you know, regional public health offices. So it's really important to understand the structure and just know who those points of contact are going to be. But public health is also critically important. And that has been on our side as well. I mean, many of the diseases, even the diseases you and I talk about, right, they're zoonotic diseases. They don't just impact animals. They don't just impact people. And that's why we all need to be working together on those. So I think absolutely. And knowing that we also communicate. So I communicate routinely with our public health officials. Um, they communicate with me if there's issues that go on that impact both of our sides. So it's really important um, to establish those relationships ahead of time. Absolutely. Absolutely critical. And, it, you know, I, I guess it's, it's the bedrock of any relationship. It's all about communication. But this is a really good reminder that we need to extend it. And I love the way you put it in peacetime. We don't want to wait for that stressful moment to do that. Exactly. Well, that's a great way. And I think that lays the foundation for us to be planning. What's your number two tip? Number two is one of your favorite things, Marla, I know, biosecurity. <laughs> so um, biosecurity is also one of my favorite things because it is one of the easiest ways that we can prevent disease spread. We can, we can you know, mitigate disease spread um, between animals and people, people and people, people and animals, all of the same. So I think biosecurity plans, they're something that a lot of folks struggle with because it's kind of a, where do we get started? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you start with a biosecurity plan? And what is the purpose of it? And how do you get everybody to uh, adapt it? How do you get everybody to adopt, right? And actually apply the principles of biosecurity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So when we say biosecurity, I think it's really a daunting task. Um, but if you break it up into, you know, you look at your 
event. You can look at your event as one thing. You can look at each individual show um, as something different. So when we're talking about specific diseases, like highly pathogenic human influenza, for example, you know, we should all be applying everyday biosecurity practices all the time. But then when we have an event like avian influenza happen, how do we apply enhanced biosecurity? What's that next level biosecurity mm-hmm. look like? And I think it's important to separate the two because the everyday biosecurity is important for uh, for public health, for example, for salmonellosis and campylobacter, those diseases that animals carry that people can get. So what biosecurity practices protect the animals? What biosecurity practices protect the people? And then we get to, we've got avian influenza but we want to be able to have a show. We want to be able to let these kiddos work on the projects that they've been working on for so long and still, you know, do something with their projects and do it in person. How can we do that safely now to protect the the bird's health, right? So in the event of an outbreak. So really biosecurity plans should always be site-specific. They should always be species-specific and sometimes they're event-specific. And so taking the, the, the time to sit down and write out what does the traffic pattern look like? What do the entry requirements look like? How do we know the animals coming in are healthy? What are our health checks going to be? And then say something gets sick while you're at the show, what are you gonna do with that sick animal? at the show? Are you going to isolate it? You should always know who to call. So Mm -hmm. if you have a sick animal and you do isolate that animal, know who you're going to call. I'm sure everybody has their veterinarian on staff, but at what point does that trigger a call to the state veterinarian's office? So that's all encompassed in your biosecurity plan. So when, when you're trying to keep everything healthy, but then something happens, what do you do next? Um, so it's really important to take a really broad look at biosecurity, uh, you know, for the whole event, but, but then your plans should actually be event specific and site specific. Yeah, absolutely. And we know that at fairgrounds, especially larger shows, they may not have the facilities to accommodate all the species at one time. So they actually have a rotation of arrival Mm -hmm. and departure, which even complicates us farther. And and I think in the work that I've done is that constant reinforcement that it has to be customized to you and your situation. And every fair really needs to look at those details. I want to hone in on one thing in particular, if you might share from your experience. I'm not sure that every fair is prepared for that isolation of a sick animal. And I think sometimes we assume that has to be something complicated, but it could be as simple perhaps as a trailer that we actually take that animal into, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Just a separate space that that you can isolate the animal while you wait for it to be examined, while you wait for diagnostic testing. I can give you an example on the equine side. So we one, one of the big diseases we're all worried about is equine herpes, mm-hmm. right? At these shows and fairs and events. And equine herpes is one that it might show up with a horse that's just looking a little bit sick. You take its temp, it might have a fever. So you wanna pull that animal away so it's not exposing any of the other horses for the period of time while you're waiting for a veterinary examination or while you're waiting for testing for equine herpes virus. So it's important that you pull that animal away so it doesn't continue to expose the rest of the horses. That might be in a separate building. That might be in a separate stall that's isolated as far away as you can. Mm -hmm. But 
pre-planning that is going to be the important thing. The other thing it might be, Marla, is that animal going home. Um, And that is something that we always, we want to encourage everybody to be very thoughtful about that. Because if it's going home to another flock or another herd, it's probably going to expose those animals to whatever it has as well. So having an isolation protocol that has, you know, the, the least amount of exposure to other animals is the most important thing. Absolutely. And I want to circle back to that and the impact that our, our shows and fairs have on production agriculture. But we're going to take a break right there for a word from our sponsor. Over 100 fairs across North America trust eTix as their total ticketing and marketing partner. Visit hello.etix.com to learn about cashless solutions for rising games, free custom websites, cash store management, and client support every step of the way. Hello.etix.com. And we're back with Dr. Maggie Baldwin. This has been a fascinating conversation. Again, thanks for your time. So we were talking about your number one tip, obviously communicate, understand, know your state regulatory authorities, both on the veterinarian side and the public health. But then we were talking about biosecurity plans. We had just talked about a little bit about isolation. Just want to delve a little bit more into the biosecurity plans, but particularly on not just at the fair and the animals and people at the fair, but there is a role about going back home, correct, that we need to be aware of? Absolutely. And I really think about it in three buckets for participants. So the three buckets is before the fair, here's your biosecurity you should be doing. At the fair, here's what you should be doing. And what the event organizers really should be planning is what that biosecurity looks like at the fair and then going home. And the reason going home is so important is because when that animal or animals are are at the fair, they're mixed with so many different bugs and critters and all sorts of exposure to disease can happen there. And there's all kinds of studies out there on, on many different species that show the level of exposure that happens at shows and fairs um, is really tremendous. There's a lot. So when you go home, you should have a plan for isolating those animals back at home before introducing them to the rest of your herd again. And that really should be, I mean, a, a two week period is ideal. That gives you enough time for that exposure to have occurred. And if the animals were exposed to something to get sick, and then you'd be able to see if they do become ill, then do testing to see what they were exposed to and what they may be sick with. So you can mitigate that before it's spread back to your your home herd. It's really important on all different species for a lot of different things, for horses, things like equine herpes, strangles, um, on, on the swine side, things like PERS virus and all the other respiratory um, bacteria, you know, and viruses that pigs get. So there's all kinds of different disease exposure, regardless of which species you're working with, that you should have a plan going back home to keep the rest of your home herd safe. Absolutely. And I think, you know, most fairs and shows that I know of, we work with youth. And and if we're about youth leadership, youth uh, understanding and preparing youth to be leaders in agriculture. And I think the role that fairs and shows have is extremely critical because in addition to that show ring experience, those youngsters need to understand their role and what that they can do can impact food security yep. in the United exactly. States and globally. And um, I'm sure that does your department, do you provide resources to fairs on that? Or do you direct them to, for example, commodity resources for understanding that? 
Yeah, so there are a lot of good resources out there that are ex- already exist. For example, um, if, you, if we're talking just in general biosecurity, USDA's Defend the Flock on the bird side is a really great resource, but there are commodity-specific biosecurity resources and tools. There's one that's really great that I'm sure you know of um, for kiddos, and it's Bring Home the Blue, Not the Flu. Mm-hmm. And that's a really good toolkit and a lot of good exercises for them to walk through and really understand what does that mean, that exposure to disease, and why is it important to, you know, mitigate that going back home? Why is it important to isolate those animals before going home? Absolutely. And I might put a plug. There's a a group of university extension folks have just premiered an online training program in modules called Prepare to Respond. That's prepare Mm -hmm. with the letter to respond. And it's great for training all folks. Uh, It's very simple, but it's a good introduction to that. Well, again, biosecurity is just incredibly uh, important and really appreciate your tips on that. Well, then we've got to be prepared in case something happens. And I think that's That's your tip number three, isn't it? That's exactly right. Yeah. So number three is contingency planning. So what happens when we have a disease outbreak? What what is the impact to those shows and fairs? And here in Colorado, we've had, you know, in the last five years, we've had three really large events that have impacted our shows and fairs pretty tremendously. First was in 2019, we had the largest vesicular stomatitis outbreak in U.S. history here in Colorado. And we quarantined nearly, I think, 700 premises across our state that that season. Um, And that really had a tremendous impact on shows and fairs. And there was a lot of questions on what can we do to still hold shows and fairs and have horses and livestock present, but do so safely. And so we put out guidance and guidelines for our shows and fairs. Here are some things, yes, you can still hold them, but here are some things that you can do. Things like having a a timed health certificate, getting a health certificate within 72 hours of arrival to make sure there's no lesions on those animals. So there was a lot of planning that went into how can they safely hold those those horse and, and livestock events during the, at that time, the largest vesicular stomatitis outbreak we've had. We saw the same thing when rabbit hemorrhagic disease um, entered the United States in 2020. Another foreign animal disease now considered stable endemic after mm-hmm. a couple of years. Um, but that was something that tremendously impacted our rabbit shows. Um, and a lot of our, our rabbit um, participants had to pivot that year and not hold events. And again, on that one, you know, we, we listened to our show and fair community and they wanted our recommendation. They wanted to know what our expectations were. And so we put out another guidance document for our shows and fairs. Here's what you can do. We recommend not holding it at this time, but here's what you can do. If you, if you want to hold events, how can you do it safely? And then now, again, like we've already talked about in the largest foreign animal disease outbreak in U.S. history, in Colorado history, with avian influenza. And so, you know, contingency planning for things that we don't know are coming is really hard, right? It's really hard to plan for all of these unexpected events. But I would say what would be important for shows and fairs is to look really broadly at all of the events and all of the species that you guys host events for. And what were to happen if we have, you know, a, a disease that may impact swine? 
what would you do for those kiddos? Would it be completely shutting off the shows? Would it be doing timed events? Would it be, you know, small group events, maybe holding it in a different area, in a different place in the building? So coming up with these contingency plans is going to be really, really important because, I mean, these kids work so hard on their projects and, you know, they put so much time and effort into it. And as a regulatory official, it breaks my heart when we have to suspend shows and fairs and events. And we do not take that decision. We do not make that decision lightly. Um, That is something that we really think hard about. What would the impact be if we continue to hold these events? And that's the context that we go into this with. But if shows and fairs go in and they already come up with plans like, hey, you know, I know that this is really important and this is what we think we can do to do this safely or doing virtual judging. A lot of people did that not only from COVID in 2020, but then again in avian influenza last year, a lot of people did virtual judging and virtual shows and virtual um, participation. So I think thinking outside of the box is really important and coming up with what do these contingency plans look like regardless of what species we're working with or what disease we're working with. Um, Thinking about that ahead of time is important. Absolutely. And that's where, if I put a plug in for our association, that's where we work work really hard. Uh, One of my greatest learnings from the 2014-2015 high path avian influenza was the number of shows that they were able to do, um, you know, the auction for the the turkeys and the poultry. They did it virtually and they had the kids, you know, like have photos and they still, you know, they walk the photos in the ring and they did the auction. So the kids still had the benefit. I took a lot of pictures that year. I was also in Colorado in 2019 during the VS outbreak, and I was watching fairs and how they were managing, for example, the entry. They, they, they stepped up the way that they checked the animals before they ever got off of the trailer. Um, we see the same thing during outbreaks of the swine influenza. So um, we try to provide resources and ideas to our members through that. But, but again, we just we always emphasize rely heavily upon your own state regulatory officials to have a better understanding of that. But thinking about being flexible, I think maybe COVID taught us all something that we can be flexible and agile in how we address these things, right? That's exactly right. And I think what is really important is, as we've seen with a number of disease outbreaks, it really doesn't matter what disease we're dealing with. It really doesn't matter what we're, what the actual bug is or what species, I mean, it's all about being flexible and adaptable and, you know, still trying to do what's right. Um, Not just for the kids and the animals, but, but really what's right for all of us. Mm -hmm. So that we can keep all of our food safe and we can be healthy. Well, this has been fabulous. I really appreciate your time. I know you're extremely busy, Dr. Baldwin. And uh, these have been three really, really great tips. And I'm glad that we had time to touch in depth on them. We wish you the very best in all that you do and hope you have a safe 2023 fair season. Thank you so much, Marla. Take care. Thank you for joining us for Marla by the Numbers, brought to you by Etix. To find out more about the IFE and our members, please visit fairsandexpos.com or our Facebook page, IAFE The Network.